Blog Talk Radio. Defense Watch Radio on the front lines of truth and liberty. This is Ray Starman, your host. For, today we're having a great two-hour Desert Storm roundtable called the Forgotten War, Gulf War One. We have an array of guests from uh, Major General Jack Lighty, the former J-2 uh, Chief Intelligence Officer in the theater during the Gulf War, uh, to retired Lieutenant Colonel Paul Adamanis, retired Chief Warrant Officer Hank Hunt, former Captain Scott Henderson, and former specialist Terrence Murphy, all to talk about different aspects of a conflict which began and ended 27 years ago. And for those people on hold, just stand by. I'll patch you in as soon as I can here. And we'll be right back on U.S. Defense Watch Radio. This is Ray Starman. U.S. Defense Watch Radio. This is Ray Storm, your host, once again for a two-hour Gulf War roundtable about a conflict that began and ended 27 years ago. The U.S. Army, its allies, Kuwait, France, the United Nations, or the United States, of course, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and a force of over oh, nearly one million Allied troops, 700,000 of those from the United States against Iraqi forces numbering roughly 650,000 troops. And before we get back to our show, it's going to start here in about five minutes as soon as we get all our guests lined up. I'm just going to talk about the news real quick, just a couple things here. Uh, breaking news, Supremes, uh, keep the dreamers. That is breaking news. You might want to check into that. It's reported live here on Drudge. Explosions at New York Times as opinion page is reinvented. Report that the Antifa is recruiting students with mental illness. There's, there's a surprise. Uh, reports also that Michael Savage may be thinking of running for Senate. That would be interesting in itself. Man opens emergency door on parked United plane, exits on slide. Another 
uh, great bit of PR for United Airlines. And one more thing of newsworthy, Georgia Senate blocks Delta tax break after spat with NRA. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, 27 years ago, the Gulf War started actually with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And I'm going to patch in, actually, I've got two of my guests already on here. Uh, we can stand by. Murph, are you on? Yep. I'm Hello. Here. Okay. Hold hey. on. And we've got Scott Henderson on. Is that correct? Hey, Ray. How Scott? are you? Okay. Hey, uh, Murph, can you hear me? Yep. I hear you. Okay. Great. Well, since you guys are the first two guys to uh, to call in, we've got uh, – let me introduce both of you guys. I've got uh, former specialist Terrence Murphy, 19 Delta Cab Scout. Let me bring in one more guest here. Everybody's calling in. Go ahead. You're on U.S. Defense Watch Radio. Hi, Ray. It's Jack Lighty. General Lighty, how are you? Uh, sir, we've got uh, with you, we've got uh, former specialist Terrence Murphy, uh, 19 Delta, Cav Scout, and former Captain Scott Henderson, Air Defense Officer. And we've got some, we've got some more uh, guests calling in right now, too. I'll just put everybody on hold for a second. Uh, okay. Paul, are you there? I am. Okay, great. Great. The only person we're missing is Hank Hunt. Let's hope he calls in. Uh, if we, I want to start with General Lighty. General Jack Lighty uh, served a combat tour with the uh, 82nd Airborne in the Dominican Republic in 1965 as part of Operation Power Pack. He did two combat tours, uh, one with company commander with 173rd Airborne, 1966-67 in Vietnam, and then went back to Vietnam uh, with the G2 section, 101st Airborne, 1969-1970, during the Gulf War, General Lighty was the J-2, meaning he was the senior intelligence officer in the theater, and what we like to call uh, General Schwarzkopf's uh, right-hand man. Would that be a, a good description for you, General Lighty? At times, it's a great description. Other times, <laughs> I wish it wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think the best way to, uh, to begin this thing is to really start at the beginning, uh, actually even uh, days, a week before uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait on August 2nd to the 4th, uh, 1990. Uh, General Eddie, could you, if you could talk about internal look, which was almost uh, almost a, literally a, a prophetic exercise in itself, but if you could describe that and how similar that was uh, to the actual invasion that the Iraqis launched just days later. Yeah, Ray, as you know, I just came back from China, which I, where I was the defense attaché during Tiananmen. So when it, an internal look started, I uh, had just arrived at CENTCOM, and, and I wasn't really even the J-2 yet, uh, but I went up to internal look uh, as the incoming J-2, and uh, it was eerily similar. General Schwarzkopf had did a, a wonderful job in anticipating the uh, the possible attack uh, by the Iraqis into Saudi Arabia. Correct. And so uh, the problem that we had there, of course, was uh, uh, that it was similar. We were doing two things. We had a exercise scenario that we were doing, and then we had the real-time scenario that we were briefing uh, at, at the late, at, you know, at a later time. So, uh, it, but the biggest problem that I saw uh, while while going through the exercise was that 
we had some real holes in our capabilities, and the main one was how to do battle damage assessment because we had had problems doing it in the two right. the two previous exercises, uh, and uh, we just because it was too hard to do and it took too much time and and uh, it was it was painful, and so uh, we didn't really do it, didn't know how to do it, there wasn't any training, there weren't any MOSs uh, for battle damage assessment, so in which became probably the most important thing we did during the Gulf War because uh, the commander wants to know how he's doing, but the most important thing is as he finds out how he's doing, what's the next step that he needs to take uh, in, in, his, uh, in his actions and orders. So it, it became something that was probably the most important thing we did uh, for General Schwarzkopf because everything he, all the decisions he made after the beginning of the campaign was based on uh, battle damage assessment. Now, now, what was the uh, intel-wise? What was the motivational factor to set up internal look? Uh, what, what were the indicators at the time that motivated the uh, sink to uh, want to conduct this exercise? There, there, there weren't any uh, at the time. There weren't any specific uh, indicators, but he, uh, having studied the Iran-Iraq War and have studied the po the politics of what was and the, and the economics of what was going on in Iraq, because uh, uh, Saddam had uh, had a large standing army, fourth largest in the world, and he had m massive debts especially to Kuwait, who uh, loaned him a great deal of money to fight the Iran-Iraq war. Correct. So he was in a trick bag. He had a large standing army. He had this major debt and didn't know where to go from there. So uh, he decided that he had to uh, he had to do something. Uh, he, I, he decided that he'd probably go south into Kuwait, and if he had also captured Saudi Arabia would add 65% of the world's oil supply. Correct, correct. So it was almost literally, I guess it was one of those events in history that's almost, uh, you know, the synchronicity that uh, the sink uh, thought we sh you should, uh, you know, start this exercise, internal look. And then how many days exactly after internal look was completed did the Iraqi invasion, which started on August 2nd, how many days was that between the exercise ended and the actual invasion hit? Well, actually, um, during our internal look, uh, he started to move uh, some of the Republican Guard units into western Iraq. And, it, uh, and so basically what we did was uh, briefing both scenarios, the exercise scenario and the real scenario. But then right. uh, we decided we better get back to, uh, back to McDill. Uh, because this thing looks like it, uh, you know, there's a possibility that uh, it, it may, uh, it may in fact erode, and uh, he may do something against uh, uh, Kuwait. Uh, he had exercised in Western Iraq before, but not with as many divisions, and some of them had come quite a ways away from their garrisons. Right. My specific interest was what was different from those previous exercises and the one that we were seeing now. 
and I and I and I told the guys to specifically look at uh, and then going back into uh, intelligence assessments. You look at if, if you look at some really key. Uh, things like medical and logistics and so forth to see if what what his intentions were, and we saw some differences in the right. medical and and the logistical uh, situations that they had then from I, what I think, they were. I, I think that was the uh, the difference. I, I remember, uh, and uh, uh, if I bring in uh, retired Colonel Paul Adamanis from Army Intelligence. Uh, when, when after the initial invasion, remember, if you remember too, General Eddie, when the uh, when Saddam had moved the Republican Guard right on the Saudi border, um, every, it was pretty much in the intel community that they, they didn't think they really were going to move, correct, because he wasn't moving any of his uh, assets down there. Well, it was sort of a fake out, if I remember correctly, compared yeah. to the actual invasion. You mean down to the Saudi border or down to the Kuwaiti border? Uh, down to the uh, to the to the Saudi border after the initial invasion, I think didn't wasn't didn't he uh, about a week later he moved the uh, some of his forces down there and I, I think the the analysis was that it was sort of a fake out because he wasn't bringing any of his logistics forward compared to I guess the uh, the original indicators when when he actually went into Kuwait. Well, we weren't really sure because he had three divisions down there, possibly four. Uh, the actual. Uh, divisions that had originally invaded the Tawakana, the Hammurabi, and the Medina. Right. Uh, and, and so uh, we weren't really sure. Um, and I, I think what happened was that we made up his mind for him when we brought in the F-15s, the 82nd Airborne, and uh, and and other elements uh, to to try to. Discourage him from from attacking into Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, it was touch and go at the time, and the Saudis realized that, or they would never have let us get in, come in. Right. Um, now, as far as the original Iraqi invasion, um, uh, if you could go through quickly the uh, disposition of the Iraqi forces, there were, uh, I believe, was it three or four Republican Guard divisions that 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 spearheaded that the invasion? Is that correct? Yeah. They have- they eventually had ten in in there, but uh, the, the the three major ones were the ones I mentioned, and um, they had uh, helicopter units uh, as well. Uh, they didn't have any real tactical air uh, fighter fighter bombers or fighters that uh, supported it, but they had uh, special forces units. Uh, and uh, and uh, helicopter units, and of course the Republican Guard units. Um, if I, if I remember that the the, the Heliborn, uh operation that they conducted uh, during the initial invasion was it was a pretty professional operation, and I think that uh, lended itself to some of the worry there uh, in early, I think it was uh, it was it was right before the uh, air war started when they thought that the Iraqis were going to launch a spoiling attack. Um, towards towards uh, Seventh Corps, KK. I think they were worried that uh, they. they uh, I don't know if they overestimated, but they they were. Uh, they thought that the Iraqi uh, Heliborn capabilities were were pretty good after what they had done in Kuwait City uh, at the time. Of course, later on they weren't flying much at all or anything. But uh, uh, General, if you could just talk about, uh, if you could about uh, how 
the, any of the human intelligence you were getting uh, during and, and, and while the invasion was going on um, from the U- U.S. Embassy. Can you comment on that? Yeah, uh, sure. We, I, it sent uh, a, a guy uh, in, into John Feely, Major John Feely. Uh, I had sent him into, uh, into Kuwait prior to the, uh, uh, the invasion because we needed some boots on the ground and gave him all the communications that I could give him. And uh, John Correct. was was uh, co- coordinating and contacting us virtually <clears throat> three, three or four times a day. Right. And uh, John was the one that actually gave us uh, the uh, the first indication that, uh, and I gave to the sink the first indication that the Iraqis were in uh, Kuwait City. Uh, Correct. John. Of course, uh, he was a wonderful guy. He did a great job. And, of course, he was, along with all the other embassy personnel, uh, were were surrounded in, in Kuwait City. Uh, and we finally got them out surreptitiously in, in, a, in an incredible uh, operation. Eventually got them out, uh, and, and so we were able to uh, rescue them into Kuwait. Into, uh, into Baghdad, if you can believe it, first. But yeah. It was kind of interesting in how we did that. But uh, that is the kind of thing that I've always, I've been a firm believer in human my whole career. And uh, that was one one of the um, examples of how human can really, uh, really do a job. Exactly. Now, uh, let's flash forward to, let's just say about a week uh, after the uh, the Iraqi invasion. Uh, what would what were the um, what was the number of troops that the Iraqis had in Kuwait at the time, General Lighty? They they had about uh, sixty to a hundred thousand uh, as as time went on. They started to they wound up with about a hundred and twenty thousand initially. Right. Uh, and so uh, we were we continuously worried as they as they brought some of these. Some of these units in now. The first in units, the Republican Guard, were the best. The second Correct. units that they brought in were uh, were pretty good. They were the like the Fifth Mech, Third Armor, um, some of those other units of the Third uh, the Third Corps uh, were pretty yeah. good units. The, the, so the first and second echelon units were pretty good. Then when they started to fill in and got up to five hundred thousand or whatever. Uh, they were just cannon fodder. Uh, a lot of them had been re-recruited and uh, to refill these these uh, frontline units. And the and the and the, um, the uh, Republican Guard and the second echelon units, the Third Corps in particular, uh, moved back and uh, let the uh, the cannon fodder uh, stay down at the at the, uh, at the southern area. Um, and, and what they did was they built roads from their positions. I'm talking about the second echelon units right. and the Republican Guards. They started building roads south so that they could react to any any uh, any indications of uh, attack from the south. And uh, of course, they expected us to have to go through Kuwait, which they hope hopefully would try to thought would be a meat grinder. And what um, they but I think you really thought initially was that if we did try it, 
that the casualties would be so high, and our and and our we didn't you know, we didn't he didn't think we. We'd take casualties very well, and I don't think we would have anyway, to be honest with you. So he thought that he was in a pretty in the catbird seat because once uh, we started to go through that, and, and uh, that uh, we'd take a bunch of casualties, and then we'd we'd sue for peace. Um, yeah, in fact, I think we we talk about that in a little bit the, as, as we get into the to the ground war itself that the Iraqis. Uh, they really didn't have GPS, is that correct? And that they would just try to stick to these roads either that were already made or that they were building? Is that, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, they had embryonic GPS, but they, they, they built the roads so, so that they could react uh, to, to the various uh, – and, and, you know, they built the fire trenches and so forth. But right. uh, the, uh, what we were worried about, and they, were, they retrograded back north – so that they could uh, be the uh, the counter a counteroffensive uh, strike force, and that's what we were really worried about because uh, you know as you as you all know that the the most critical time in any offensive is as you go across the wire. Um, uh, if we t- go ahead, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to talk about it, and I want to bring in the uh, the rest of our uh, our guests here. As far as the, we get into Desert Shield uh, beginning, um, when when did the uh, when did your the, the, your staff and actually CENTCOM uh, staff with General Schwarzkopf what what day again did you deploy to the theater? Uh, I'm trying to remember, but I think it may have been around the 22nd of August. Okay. Okay. Somewhere. In there, uh, the you know the General Schwarzkopf and and uh, and the principal staff deployed. I'm trying to remember the exact date. I I should have it seared in my memory, but I I think that sounds about right. Um, now, if I I want to like just to introduce the rest of my guests here. Uh, I've got uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Paul Adamanis, who served as the uh, S2 for the Four Squadron Seventh Cavalry during the war. Paul, are you there? I certainly am. Oh, okay, great. Hello. Um, and I also have with uh, with me. I've got uh, former Captain Scott Henderson, um, graduate of West Point, who is the uh, uh, Stinger platoon leader, air defense officer during the war. Scott, are you there? I am. Hello. Uh, very Pleasure, good. Scott. And... Scott, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, General Lighty just said hi to you. I don't know if you heard him. Oh, hi, General. How are you, sir? Great, Scott. Thank you. And uh, I've got with me also, I've got uh, retired Chief Warrant Officer 4, Hank Hunt. Hank, are you on, are, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I am, and good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Hi, Hank. Um, good talking to you, Chief. <laughs> Thanks, General. Good talking to you too. <laughs> How are you doing there, Lieutenant Colonel Adamanis? Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Last time you. I I'm saw you, well. Captain. <laughs> yep. Um, and I also have Specialist uh, Terrence Murphy, former Specialist Terrence Murphy, our uh, man on the ground, should we say, the 19 Delta Calf Scout. Murph, uh, want to say hi to everybody? Hello, gentlemen. Ray, how you doing? Murph, it's great for you to uh, – thanks for joining us. Eric, and, great, uh, great talking to you. And, uh, 
Okay, well, let me, you know, we talked about uh, CENTCOM staff moving as Desert Shield was beginning. Uh, Paul, if you could talk to us about, I think, something we all can relate to, uh, the, uh, as far as preparation, I think as Desert Shield kind of started to move along every week that passed, there was this looming feeling that uh, even 3rd Armored Division, and which had been you know, collecting mothballs in Europe for, what, 45 years, was actually going to maybe have to move out too. Paul, if you could fill us in on what was the uh, S2 section doing to sort of uh, maybe do a complete 180 from studying the Soviet threat to now learning about the Iraqis? Yeah, uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of a challenge, especially at the beginning, because we were, uh, 3rd Armored Division was part of 5th Corps, and uh, so the intel, flow, uh, was the, the intel flow was going to 7th Corps, so our higher headquarters, uh, uh, we weren't really getting uh, the initial, like, intel dumps and insums and things like that, so a lot of it was open source, a lot of it was examining, um, you know, what the Iraqis did during the the uh, Iran-Iraq war, those kind of things uh, were our initial kind of, while we were still in Budigan there, uh, kind of our, our um, basic, basic, uh, basically kind of how we uh, started off, um, which was quite intensive. And we kind of looked at some of the, I mean, the upside was that, you know, Saddam did have a lot of Soviet type equipment. So a lot of the, a lot of the information was, um, Kind of similar, but their tactics were, were obviously going to be slightly different. They also had a uh, the Iraqis that is also had a history of dealing with uh, the the Brits, so they had kind of a British rank structure and, and a few things like that. And as we kind of moved forward, uh, you know, as we started to deploy, and once we deployed, uh, when we were in the in in uh, debarking in the port, uh, Intel was still a little sketchy. We had uh, a little hard. You know, we didn't have a place to store really a lot of classified information. But we were getting some trickles in. We did have a few uh, manuals that we could uh, kind of go over. We did go out and talk to different troops uh, and kind of fill them in on what was going on. And then once we really got into the tactical assembly area, the real flow of, of intel really started. And uh, we would we'd get in some. As a, as a division cab squadron, the reconnaissance kind of element of the division, uh, we did have uh, – we were getting things uh, – uh, at least intel uh, that we were getting from that a brigade would get. So we would get a, an intel dump that was kind of on the brigade side. And we just started trying to build a picture of uh, what the uh, what the threat was going to entail. Yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a great description of what was going on. It was there was a lot of uh was just sort of picking here and there whatever we could get to uh to find out. I think I even know a lieutenant who tried to call the Israeli embassy to find some information. But uh, yes, they yes. Uh, they I weren't they weren't that, that cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, now Scott, how about you? You, you why don't you tell us? Uh, you were with five three eighty eight. You were part of what the Eighth Infantry Division at the time. Is that correct? Right. Well, it was. Uh, I, I was listening to uh, uh, Colonel Adamantis. If I call you Captain Adamantis, it's going to be out of an old habit. So uh, I was listening. <laughs> I was listening to. Uh, uh, the colonel talk about you know that transition period there and and uh, and I was I was remembering how you know the army really demonstrated some tremendous operational flexibility without disappointing on the uh, you know on the parts of the stereotypical parts where we all deserve you know sort of chuckle a little bit because 
I was, as you know, uh, and as Captain Anamonis knows, sorry, Colonel Anamonis knows, I was in boot again. I was with 3-5-ADA, and, uh, and we had deactivated. 3rd AD was in the middle of deactivating, and I had received orders along with about 100 other soldiers to, uh, to move to the other side of Frankfurt to 5-3-ADA, which was the 8th Infantry Division's uh, Air Defense Battalion. Uh, and we were going to make that move in March of 1991, is that right? Uh, yeah, and uh, so. and then of course in in August, uh, uh, Saddam made the invasion. Uh, we began to, to hear rumors, like everybody else did, that Third AD was going to go down there. Uh, and then uh, the the Monday before Thanksgiving of 1990, they called all of us. Uh, uh, who they said uh, if you're if you have orders to go to to, to five three uh, in Mainz, uh, meet in the post theater at ten hundred uh, on Monday morning, and uh, so we all get there and uh, they tell us instead of uh, uh, relocating in March, we needed to uh, that five three the third armored division was indeed going to go down to Iraq because three five and boot again. <laughs> had already turned in all its equipment. They were going to use 5388 from, from the 8th Infantry Division uh, to deploy with 3rd Armored. And instead of reporting for duty in March of 1991, we were to report for PT at 0530 the following Monday morning. So hmm. we had 100 soldiers had to clear post and, and move uh, in a week over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, yeah, the funny part was is that we did. We got there. There were a hundred of us, hundred soldiers, and one butter bar showed up at five fifteen Monday morning. And Eighth ID did not know we were coming. <laughs> we just showed up, and they they didn't know we were coming. But they they were glad to have us, and we were glad to have a home. And and of course they were very busy because they had been notified they were going to the desert. So we all were think- uh, gainfully employed very quickly. Now, I think there was just this, uh, I think everybody agree with me, this, this sort of a crescendo, or uh, just this gradual snowball of energy and the looming uh, feeling in your gut that this whole thing that, you were, that we were going to. And uh, I just, uh, I think forward to about November of 1990, I, I don't think any place be, the worst place to be in the world when you're going to find out you're going to a war is Hohenfels in November while it's snowing. Yeah, no I kidding. Think, um, <laughs> Now I just uh, is is one well, so I believe it was uh, what was the date maybe about November eighth when when uh, Dick Cheney announced that uh, they were sending over uh, two hundred fifty thousand more guys. Uh, General Lighty, I think that res- the 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 the, re- the for the most part obviously more firepower, but uh, from what was going on in, in Riyadh, didn't didn't pretty much the the sink realize? I mean the Jedi Knights they gave him a bunch of different plans and he realized that he couldn't do it. Uh, without a lot of casualties unless he brought everybody over from Europe? Is that kind of what happened? Well, what, it, what actually happened was is that they wanted a, uh, you know, I was working with the Jedi Knights uh, throughout, but uh, what, what they wanted was a, a plan, and General Schwarzkopf said, look, I says, he, he said, I can't do anything other than go high diddle diddle up the middle unless I get and they said, well, send, send back a briefing team. So they sent back a briefing team, and he said, look, they're going to brief you on something that I don't think we ought to do. Well, anyway, they asked, and they went back there, and they hammered the briefing team uh, for uh, right. 
it was uh, uh, General Bob Johnston and, and a couple other guys, one of my guys and some others, who briefed uh, the, the, uh, the chairman and the SECDEF and, and, and others. Uh, and they, they really hammered him, and they hammered the sink. And he was furious because he told them that this is what he didn't want to do, but he was limited because of the number of the, the, the troop force that he had. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, once they got, once they uh, did that and, and they talked to the sink, and, and then the president said, well, what do you need? And he told him, and he said, well, you're going to get it. So that's when, the, that's when the Second Corps came in, uh, the uh, additional, uh, additional carrier battle groups, uh, and, of course, uh, different uh, air and so forth. Uh, to to round it out so that he could do the left hook, right? Uh, and so and so that brought us up with uh, well, I guess with the forces from Europe, uh, I, I believe is the number. This is not correct, uh, General Idea. Seven hundred thousand U.S. troops eventually there. Is that about right? Uh, I really know the exact number, but I, the the number that I that I keep remembering is five hundred forty-one thousand. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Now. Um, we're in November 1990. Uh, uh, the ele- uh, elements from uh, the uh, USRA in Europe, United States Army Europe, have been alerted. Uh, Hank, why don't you tell us what was uh, what was the air cab doing to ready itself to deploy to uh, to Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, I remember. Uh, let me back up a little bit. To, I, I showed up at Budgen in July. And uh, I just come out of the first of the 17th Cav there in 82nd Airborne Division, and um, I showed up and had a uh, platoon of uh, I had a second lieutenant that had just come out of Cobra Transition in West Point two weeks beforehand, and all W1s that had about the most had like about eight months' experience uh, flying Cobras and one W2, and um, I had another instructor pilot there. Um, and I remember there in August when the the uh, Iraqis uh, went into Kuwait, and uh, we were discussing what to do and how to train up our troops because almost everybody there was a W1 or a second lieutenant. And uh, I remember we argued over that uh, when the 24th Infantry Division was alerted and told to go, you know, to load up and head over to the desert. Uh, I remember I got everybody together and I said, "Hey, we're getting ready to we're getting ready to get called up. This is going to be a th- throwdown uh, fight, and and they are going to call us out." And I remember the other instructor pilot was laughing about it, and we got in a big argument. And uh, I was actually called. He said, "You're nothing but a damn warmonger," and I said, "You're nothing but an idiot," because he wanted to train about Europe and instrument flying. I said, "That's a bunch of bullshit." That. Uh, we need to be training about weapon systems and target ID, and also he took his troop and they all trained up about flying, you know, instruments all around Germany. And uh, my troop, um, we ended up Charlie troop. We ended up training on our, our weapon systems, our target ID, and uh, tactics. And um, it ended up most of the guys in his troop would come to our classes. And uh, when we got down to Hohenfels. Sure enough, we found out we were we were going to war, and um, but I think by the time we we uh, showed up at the desert, I think uh, all my young W1s 
and uh, my lieutenant and all, I think they're ready for it. And uh, they showed it in combat, and uh, especially uh, making sure we didn't have any fratricide incidents and all, because uh, uh, that gunship is a is a mighty weapon system, and uh, and with the tow missiles and the rockets and the 20 millimeter, you can do a lot of damage, and uh, especially if you shoot the wrong people, you know, which we saw with the first infantry division there, Apache Battalion commander shooting a Bradley and a fist vehicle out there. And, uh, right. But I had complete faith in all my guys because they trained really, really hard. And uh, uh, Colonel Tucker uh, would would drop in on us on a pretty regular basis on our training, and uh, he was real pleased with what we were doing. And um, but uh, we trained Colonel. up and uh, got our aircraft ready, and so we were we were ready for it when we when we showed up in the desert. We were ready. Colonel Colonel Tucker was of course the commander four seven cav. Retired as General Major General Tucker uh, Murph. What as as the uh, as the as the realization that you were going to war was taking place? What was going on in the uh, in the ground troops as far as preparation to head out to the big sandbox? Oh well, I think uh, a lot of the NCOs and officers had seen the writing on the wall and that it was uh, most likely inevitable that we would be deployed. So, and then, you know, we got the word and when we were at Hohenfels. So um, we had been preparing to some degree before that and and then and, and working in support of Operation Desert Storm. But um, from the moment we got the, the, the word from Colin Powell at, uh, when we were at Hohenfels, uh, we worked seven days a week, you know. Um, right. Getting prepared. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, inventory, everything, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking from, I saw it from the, the worm's eye perspective. It was inventory and inspect everything, and uh, I know 47 Cav beat uh, 122nd uh, Port Battalion like a rented mule for equipment, <laughs> and we got latest, the latest NVGs, electronic equipment, radios. I'm. Uh, I'm pretty sure some of our radios were stolen, but uh, I won't swear to that. Um, yeah. You know, the NCOs made sure our, our paperwork was square with PAC, and we, you know, drilled incessantly on uh, NBC map reading, weapons, vehicle identification, um, aircraft ID, you name it. So. Exactly. No, I, th- I think you're right, Murph. I think there was a, uh, like I said, just gradual uh, feeling wherever we were going to end up there. Um even though Third Armored Division really, you know, it was going to have to shake some of the mothballs off, and uh, but but we made it there. So let's let's if we can flash forward now, uh, General Lighty to January of 1991 uh, in the war room. Can you kind of just uh, kind of just describe the, the war room? Some of the main characters in there in Riyadh in the CENTCOM headquarters, um, people you interacted with, and what, what was what was sort of the daily schedule in there that. You know, what was your life like in there as, as the air war was maybe two weeks away or at the beginning of January 1991? Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, of course, we we spent 18 to 20 hours a day uh, in the war room, or I did anyway, um, or down, we were down in the bowels of motor build, the motor building with General Schwarzkopf. Um, his uh, his deputy well his deputy hadn't arrived yet uh, and 
the chief of staff was uh, Marine uh, Marine Major General uh, Bob Johnston, um, and the J3 and me basically. Uh, at, at times, the J-4 was there. We had uh, sometime the uh, State Department representative. Uh, we had uh, Marine uh, liaison officers sometimes. But uh, we had a, a schedule of briefings for General Schwarzkopf. first one was 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then we had... Uh, one in the evening around 5 o'clock, about 1,700, and then around 2,100 we had a, another briefing for the Saudis. Interesting thing is, of course, we had to work with the Saudis and we had to brief the Saudis, but the Saudis came to work at about noon, huh. and then they stayed until midnight. They worked until midnight. I guess it's kind of going back to how they survived in the desert, you know, so they wanted to work when it was cooler. Of course, coming in at noon in the desert wasn't very cool, but they did they did work until uh, probably midnight. So our days were not only wrapped up with General Schwarzkopf's calendar, but with the Saudi calendar. And uh, we had the brief uh, constantly. And uh, we also had the brief in the C3I, which is uh, the... the the Joint Intelligence Center. Uh, so it was uh, it was a very very long day, and we used an awful lot of uh, time and effort to uh, to put together some of these uh, some of these things. And probably again the most important thing we did was battle damage assessment, uh, and of course uh, in, intelligence uh, uh, assessments as a whole. And right. then we had to. Responsibility for maps, and we had a responsibility for a whole bunch of other things that <clears throat> intelligence officers don't normally have. Well, the, uh, the the map crisis, I know it circulated all the way down to 47 Cav. I think uh, Paul can talk about that. Uh, the, the 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 maps, Paul. Lack of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we. Uh, well, I would say that uh, that was probably a, a failing in the system because. The maps, uh, you know, we were kind of used to operating on 1 to 50, which is a fairly small-scale map, and that worked pretty good for Europe, and it works fairly good for a, st uh, a static uh, situation. Uh, but when you're on the move, uh, it's not quite that. Uh, you're pretty much driving off a map sheet, you know, every five or ten minutes. Uh, well, but, uh, can I break in there and just let you tell you sure. what happened there? Uh, what I did was I brought in everybody, uh, all of the component uh, twos, and I said, "Look." And the other thing we had we had a problem with is is the coverage because and the time frames because we didn't want to give away where the hell we were going, and and uh, and that was critical to General Schwarzkopf. So I had to I had to figure out how to do that without giving away the farm. Right. Uh, problem that we had was as I, as I started to get into the scale, and I thought 1 to 250 was probably about right, maybe 1 to 100, uh, but the problem was that the Army commander, a uh, good guy, but he, he requested 1 to 50s, and it went all the way up to the chairman, 
I went back to the chief staff of the Army. He said, we need 150s and we need them fast. And so uh, then they went to DMA, and DMA started to produce 1-50s. And, and not only was it that the speed of, 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 of armor, but also, and, and choppers, but also the, the definition in the ground was terrible. You know, you, you, what the hell are you going to hit 1-50 in a desert? So what what I rec what I was recommending was either one to a hundred or one to two fifties, which I thought would be probably pretty good. But uh, the problem the problem we had was, and we brought in some of those, but problem we had was that the, the it was already in train, and some they even produced one to twenty fives. Mm. Uh, the Brits were producing some of the one to twenty fives for us, wow. which was which was really not very worthwhile, although they did a great job. And so and, uh, I, just to give you a scale, and I had gone to war three times without maps, so I I was, you know, as a rifle company commander in the 82nd and in the 173rd, uh, cool. no maps. So I was very, very conscious of, of, of that, and I tried my damnedest. And then I had to really kind of figure out, where to have these these maps made for for what areas because if I had it made for a specific area then people would know where the hell we were going so I had to have them made for a, a wider dispersal area and so we wound up with 113 million maps map products <laughs> oh, wow and uh, <laughs> Tons, tons of, you know, uh, hundreds of tons of maps. I would get a, uh, a message in uh, that the there was a 600, 600 tons of maps or whatever it was in in, uh, uh, in one of the ports, and I said uh, they said how where do you how do you want to get them? So I went to the army. I said you guys want the maps. You're going to have to prioritize the C the C5 loads. That you're bringing in, you want bullets, beans, or maps, and they, and in a lot, most cases, they said we'll bring in the maps. So it was, uh, it was 55 C5 loads we brought in for maps. Wow, I, I remember. Them, good God, a lot of them were, a lot of them were absolutely useless because they are one to 50. And a lot of them were of the wrong area because I had to do that. So not so not to highlight where the hell we were going in. So it was uh, it, it, it was it was really tough. And I wanted to make sure we had some, we had at least maps. But I thought that probably one to two fifties or one to one hundreds would probably be best. Uh, and then the problem, other than that, that. Uh, by producing just army military maps of those scales, we we weren't able to give the Air Force and the Navy uh, their navigational maps because they were all being produced uh, in the Army area. So we, we had a problem getting the navigational maps to the Air Force and to the Navy, although they had a whole bunch of them, and they don't change. Correct. Correct. Um 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, there was actually a point there in uh, four seven cab where we were using uh, Rand McNally maps for about a week or two that my dad had sent me, and uh, they were up there in the talk. Hmm. Uh, if, if we could, if we could fast forward now to the eve of the of the beginning of the Air War, which I, if I remember right, it was what January seventeenth, nineteen ninety one. General, if you could talk about what, what was General Schwarzkopf, being obviously an Army guy, his knowledge of the air campaign. How tuned in was he to what you know was going to happen, and as far as what you thought were going to be projected casualties on uh, on, on our side uh, on that first yeah. night? He was very aware. He and I went over to uh, Suntaf and got the uh, air campaign briefing uh, in exquisite detail. It was really incredible, uh, and I can't remember how many sorties, but there were close to a thousand sorties on the first night. Uh, both Air Force and, and Navy and, and the Army uh, uh, snake, uh, the uh, the gunships that got the uh, radar sites uh, right. earlier. But what we what we were worried about was the initially were the uh, F-117s because they were going after the critical targets. In downtown Baghdad, you know, the air defense uh, headquarters, the, all the military headquarters uh, areas, and and uh, we and you you saw the you saw pictures of the of the air defense uh, uh, during that period of time, and it was awesome. Uh, and uh, we only had three, I think, three aircraft. That were down. Either they shot down um, that night, and all the F-117s when they came back, it was just astounding that all of them made it back. And I remember distinctly General Schwarzkopf turning back and looking at me and smiling like hell, and said, "They all made 100% made it back." So that was uh, it was incredible. At times we had uh, some days we had 2,200 sorties. Now these wow. are not only tax sorties, but they were uh, electric birds and and uh, refuelers and stuff like that. So, but they, you know they weren't all attack air- aircraft. But uh, that was an enormous thing. And of course, then you had to do BDA on all those airstrikes, and it was it was a monumental task. So um, as as now as the air campaign is kicked off. Uh, if I remember correctly, what, what, when did when did Saddam first launch the first Scuds? Was it about 36 hours right after 40 a couple days, or was it sooner than that? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, uh, and the, the Scud was a real problem for us, and of course he had those he had those sites. Uh, there were fixed sites out west that were aimed at Israel, and we took those out on the first night. Uh, they right. were over in uh, uh, in western Iraq. And uh, we took them all out. There were 22 of them, and we took them out uh, the first night. But of course, then you had the mobile missiles, which, which were difficult to, to uh, to find. Um, um, before I bounce over to, to that, or I want I wanted to talk about the uh, Great Scud Hunt and Special Forces. Um, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about the Patriot missile, which was sort of became the one of the stars of the Gulf War. Um, and uh, its capabilities and, and maybe its success rate, actually, of, of taking out SCUDs during the war. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, 
the in full disclosure here, I was a shore ad guy, so, uh, short range air defense. We were the tactical guys. We were the ones on the ground with the the guns and the missiles that didn't shoot very far. And uh, uh, and it was my uh, my air defense brethren who were actually shooting the Patriots. Um, the um, but the the Patriot was um, really kind of the breakout star, I think, of the Gulf War because. Uh, it was the everybody knew that that the Iraqis had these these Scud missiles in and just to put it in perspective so to understand the the complexity of the of the firing solution if you will these are missiles that uh, that shoot pretty much straight up into the air they go to an altitude of about 160,000 feet uh, and then they just turn around and drop down on their target, obviously following a, a ballistic, that curved path. But uh, when they're when they're coming down, they hit terminal velocity at about Mach six. So these are these are not easy to shoot at and hit. Uh, so the army didn't have uh, any sort of weapon that was that was designed with a capability of of shooting something like that down. In fact, we were, I don't remember what arms control treaty it was specifically, but, you know, anti-missile systems were, were uh, against the rules under the treaties that we made with the Soviets. Uh, so we really didn't have anything. They had, uh, as it turns out, the, the, the Raytheon people uh, had been uh, working on a variant of the Patriot missile that could shoot down uh, a uh, an incoming missile, so a ground-to-air anti-missile variant of the Patriot. Uh, but when the war started or when the invasion happened in August, I just read this in preparation for uh, uh, for this podcast here. Apparently, they only had three missiles in existence um, for the thing. So it was really a really rapid spin-up. Uh, on the part of the defense contracting industry and the Army to get enough missiles in theater uh, and fingers crossed that they would work. Uh, and they did work very well, um, uh, in part because of the, 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 I think the real differentiator uh, was the, the phased array uh, radar that the Patriot had, and it was able to track, if I understand exactly how it worked correctly, it was able to track mm-hmm. these missiles uh, the incoming missiles that were moving so quickly, it was able to, uh, to to keep an eye on them, basically, and track them, and then make adjustments mid-flight, obviously. Uh, but uh, the the short answer to the question that you had, of how successful were they? They were very successful. They were, uh, I think, maybe even more successful than uh, than than we expected them to be. Um, uh, I know that. To my knowledge, I might I might have this wrong, but when a Patriot umbrella was in place, I'm only aware of one Scud missile that was able to make it through and strike a target and do damage. Now, up and we we deployed them obviously in the in the Saudi Arabia uh, area down in Dharan and protect those uh, uh, airstrips and the and the assets down there. We also deployed them. Uh, to Israel around Tel Aviv and Haifa, and then up in uh, Turkey, put them in there. And I know some scuds hit 
hit targets in Israel, but I don't think any got through after we got our Patriots in place. Uh, and in Saudi Arabia, which is a theater I'm much more uh, familiar with, to my recollection, I think only one got through to do significant damage, which unfortunately is where it hit at the Kobar Towers there and, and hit one of the towers and killed the of our, our uh, guys there. But considering that this missile was being asked to do something that uh, the PAC-2, the, 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 the second-generation variant, was designed to take out a missile, but it was literally they the missiles were still labeled experimental when they first started going over. Um, so the so the soldiers hadn't been properly trained. They hadn't been. I mean, nobody. I, I, I mean, just uh, it, it was uh, an amazing uh, spin up. Like I said, just to get these things there, and the fact that they worked, and the soldiers were able to uh, to deploy them uh, and have that kind of success rate, I think is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. Now, now, uh, General Lighty, if you could, uh, switching, I guess we're just going to go due west here to the uh, Great Scud Hunt out in the western desert. If you could talk to us about uh, how many uh, mobile missile launchers you were after and uh, how special forces were employed to uh, find them. Well, we, uh, we frankly don't know how many mobile missiles were out west, but uh, the, the problem that we had was uh, people would say, well, how come you can't find them out there? But uh, one night, uh, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, General Schwarzkopf and I were sit, just sitting in the war room, and he said, uh, uh, you know, we were looking for Scud missiles out west, and he said, how big is that area out there? So I kind of gave him a ballpark figure, and then later I kind of figured it out, and it was about 27,000 square miles. Hmm. And it was equivalent to, uh, I think I remember, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire trying to find pickup trucks in those four four or five states. So it's 27,000 miles, and that's just out west. Now, they were firing also from northwest of Baghdad, uh, southeast of Baghdad, and southwest of Baghdad. Now when we get back into the into the Patriot. The Patriots did, I think, did a pretty good pretty good job. And I'm not so sure how many they got and how many they didn't get. Uh, the the problem that I saw with some of the extended range uh, missile scuds that the uh, Iraqis uh, made up was that they they would cut them in, in the fuel tanks and extend the fuel tanks which would, of course, reduce the, the amount of, of uh, warhead that they could put on it, but they still extended the ranges. But uh, I went out and looked at a couple of them that had crashed, uh, and they were so poorly done, the, the, uh, the uh, metal was really a thin gauge, uh, and the wiring was really very uh, amateurish. Uh, but what I think happened was, as they extended those things, and they used such a, uh, a, uh, a thin gauge metal to to wrap those extended fuel tanks, was that as the missiles came back down into the atmosphere, uh, they started to break up. And I think that's one of the problems we had when when they uh, when they hit that barracks. 
was that the missiles broke up. So it was difficult right. for, for us to assess whether the Patriots got them or, or I know, you know, sometimes you'll see the Patriot contrails go up and you'll see an explosion up in the air, in the atmosphere, but you don't know whether the Patriot got them or they broke up on, on reentry. But that, that's 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 what I had heard. That uh, that in fact that sometimes the Patriot was engaging not just the a whole Scud missile, but actually a piece of the missile um, in itself. Um, uh, if we could switch over to, to Paul, as we're now you know into the air war, we're in January of 1991. As the air war is progressing, what was happening uh, down in the S2 le- S2 land? As far as how are you getting your information? How are you building? your picture of what the enemy situation was at a battalion level. Yeah, we, we actually, by the time we got to the tactical assembly area, the air war uh, had kicked off at that point. We were fairly well tuned into third uh, armored divisions, uh, G2 section, their Intel section. We were getting uh, uh, pretty much daily uh, or every other day. We'd definitely go up and pick up our, um, our, our, dump of intel type that we also had a very primitive fax machine back in the day i can't even remember what it's called but um so every day or twice a day i can't remember the uh how often we'd get the insum the intelligence summary that would come in kind of come in on a little paper would kind of be kind of curly it's just amazing that we use this thing uh but we were able to uh you know we we were we had the talk set up the the 577s the command and control vehicles were were uh you know, merged together S3, S2 shop, and uh, the talk extensions out. We were able to plot uh, apparently detailed analysis of uh, what the uh, threat was looking like. We uh, we were able to get some, um, actually some British products that were uh, fairly, uh, I believe they were probably originally derived from uh, imagery uh, in, uh, analysis or imagery uh, um, as the intel source, and then they overlaid it over the a map, so we were able to actually had some pretty good idea of the fixed positions that the Iraqis had uh, set up, and uh, we were um, briefing the troops on kind of what's going on. We had a daily uh, staff meeting slash ops meeting where Colonel Tucker, the the squadron commander, was, and uh, we gave an intel dump every day there. Uh, one area that I think that we had a little uh, area that was. A, I don't know. Our weather data was fairly poor. Uh, it seemed like every time I tried to do the, uh, the the weather, it was like what my weather sheet said and what the weather was outside uh, did not always match. So uh, that was kind of a little bit of a, a frustration. But uh, that's kind of how it kind of went on. I think that we had a fairly pretty coherent picture of what was going on. Uh, the F3 shop uh, – we worked fairly closely with them with their maneuver, which, which, which they want, what their maneuver plan at least initially was going to be. Uh, right. There was an Iraqi T-12 battalion that was on one of uh, the flanks that we were going to be screening. And uh, unlike in an exercise, I couldn't just take it off the map, you know, I mean, it's there. So uh, it was interesting to see the whole air tasking order go up and basically worked with the three and the, uh, the artillery guys and uh, our ALO. And uh, it got tasked out to get hit. And, uh, you know, at that point I was able to watch it kind of wither on the vine and then take it off the map. So uh, it was, at that portion worked quite well, I thought. Um, and if I could uh, for, go back to General Lighty here, we're, we're now almost at the end of January 1991. 
Um, if we could talk a little bit about uh, uh, Kafji, which uh, I believe was on uh, the Battle of Kafji, which started on January 29th, 1991. Uh, General Light, if you could kind of take us into the war room of uh, how you found out what was happening and, and, and you know, how you went from there, uh, analyzing how many units the Iraqis uh, were launching this, uh, this uh, attack with, spoiling attack, I guess. Well, I guess we have to kind of uh, understand why he did it to start with. Um, there are a couple incidents that, that stick out in my mind. One was uh, what he wanted to do was to break up the coalition to start with. That was one of his main main objectives, and that's why he, he went into Israel, and maybe Israel would respond, and, of course, the coalition would break down. And, and of course, the, the uh, king of Saudi Arabia had said that uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't allow any, uh, any penetration of Saudi, uh, Saudi space. Uh, and so uh, when I look back at our insum about two or three days before, we had, we had said that uh, uh, there's a possibility that he – we were looking at three corps actually over by uh, uh, over by uh, Kachi, but also out west near RR there were some activities as well, and so we put in our report about two days before that that there's possibly a spoiling attack, possibly attacks to to uh, precipitate some activities in uh, re- reaction on our part uh, and get get this. What he wanted to do was start the war early. Well, first of all, Correct. what he wanted to do was to capture uh, a whole bunch of Saudis. That would be a, a, a psychological uh, boon to him. Uh, so what happened was that I, in fact, had given some fair warning. We had about the Third Corps commander. And we had, had said the possibility exists that both in RR and in Kachi, uh, there could be a, a, an attack uh, precipitate, uh, precipitate the ground war and, and to psychologically uh, damage our relationship with the Saudis. Uh, so what happened was the attack in RR as well as Kachi, at the, at the, uh, there was a, a small spoiling attack near RR out west. But uh, right. what he did was he, he went in. He went in there uh, with, uh, and, and we had some Marines. Uh, I think they were some kind of reconnaissance unit in there. Uh, were, were the only uh, U.S. presence there. In fact, I don't know if there was any Saudi presence there, but whatever Saudi presence there was, or Arab Corps presence there was, wasn't there very long. So I remember uh, in the war room that the uh, the one of their one of their generals came in uh, and was just reading the riot act, not reading the riot act, but begging General Cal Waller. Said we've got to do something about it. We got to do something about it. And he was in a panic. And of course, General Waller, a great guy that he was, he he tried to calm him down, uh, but the. The main con- the main thing that we did there was that we allowed the Arab Corps to take back Kachi. That was our main concern, and we would support them 
with uh, with A-10s and and uh, and uh, other air, uh, other aircraft. Uh, we and then of course the Marines came came uh, on on the western flank to uh, to seal off that area as the uh, as the uh, Arab Corps was going in there. They did a pretty darn good job, but <clears throat> what happened? What happened? The, the reason why they were able to get back in there pretty quickly was um, that uh, our air forces were just kicking the shit out of uh, out of them and. They had they had no way of, uh, of of getting out of there without getting their ass handed to them. And so, <laughs> now, um, it was very I, I important. Think, it, think, it was a very important indication to me that uh, that you know the, the, we took out their command and control communications that uh, they would be virtually blind and. We got. We were talking earlier about them being Soviet trained, and, and of course, uh, if we were able to cut off their their communications to the core level, in particular, that uh, they they not only would be blind, but they wouldn't know what to do and how to act because they couldn't use initiative. I always say that you know their core commanders couldn't do anything without uh, without uh, permission from Baghdad, whereas we had. NCO was out in the middle of the desert doing independent action. So that was quite, that was that was quite a uh, quite a difference. The the only problem that we had uh, during that during that time uh, was that uh, we had some blue on blue, which was not very good. And so, right. uh, following that period of time, we had to make sure that we had proper identification on on our vehicles. Uh, uh, not only not only electronic but visual, uh, but it was uh, it was I thought and 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 actually afterwards uh, I went up General Schwarzkopf and he asked me what I thought and I said uh, I said you know these guys aren't worth the shit they can't do a, a coordinated attack above the regimental level and and I and and I. Told him, I said they aren't worth the shit, and then they basically said we're going to kick the shit out of this guy. Um, uh, you know, we you can't be too confident, but that was a real indication that they, w- with our air, with our air support, uh, and how fast we were going to move, that they couldn't respond, especially if we took out their command and control. Um, I had a map in in my office that I was, I was. You know, literally, I, 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 night and day, I would look at it and take out key nodes uh, to, to prevent the uh, Baghdad providing them guidance to the corps commanders and, and below, uh, and and from the corps commanders and below. And of course, we we, we blinded them basically. Um, uh, so well, it was it was a good indicator, but it was something that could have. That could have number one precipitated the ground war before its time, and number two, it could have broken up the uh, the coalition a little bit, put a little chink in the armor. Uh, so it was uh, it was it was it was a dangerous <clears throat> ex- good exercise, and I think we thought of it pretty well. Um, what was the uh, what was the attitude 
as far as is is you know after Kofji, as far as the Republican Guard, uh, did did you believe that they weren't as formidable as we thought, or was still going to be a pretty good fight? That they were no, different. No, I, than... I thought they would they would put up a pretty good fight. I always did. Uh, they were different. I mean, there is no question. Even the second echelon, the third corps and the fifth, or the third armor, fifth mech, and so forth, uh, were pretty pretty good. But the Republican Guard uh, was basically the palace guard, and and uh, they were they were well equipped. They were well trained. They were well paid. Uh, which was very important to Sodom to make sure that the Republican Guard was well trained, well armed, well uh, well equipped, and well paid. And so I, I knew that they would they would fight, and that's uh, that's what uh, General Schwarzkopf was most interested in as we crossed the wire. Was what that was his top priority? What was the Republican Guard going to do? And, and that's when I uh, mentioned uh, the, uh, the, the value of J-Stars, uh, if we could get it, get it in country. So what, what would you say the, uh, the, the, the overall strength, roughly, if you took all the Republican Guard divisions in the uh, Kuwait Theater of Operations, on the eve of uh, the ground war, G-Day, uh, February 24th, 1991, what would you say, General Eddie? What was the uh, the overall strength of the Republican Guard, even though they had been, you know, they'd been hit pretty badly for uh, for weeks? Uh, I thought that they were still in pretty good shape, uh, the, especially the three the three key divisions, um, and uh, whether you know they had the T seventy two M ones, uh, which were uh, uh, their top top of the line tank. But interestingly, uh, back when I was doing another job, uh, I was able to get a uh, a company of T-72s from another country, and we took it back, took them back to the states, and we took them out and tested our M1s against them, or our the tanks we had at the time, and uh, we we built the M1. Based on that, on the, all that testing, to take out the T-72 M1, and right. we built uh, the Chavo Marmor. We 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 uh, we actually changed out the 105 gun to the 120 gun uh, to make sure that we could penetrate their uh, their armor. Uh, so it was uh, it was pretty well. We pretty well knew that our guys would would take them out. But we we knew that they would give us a fight. And on the uh, the, the as the ground war started, um, what was uh, General Schwarzkopf I mean, as far as the or the first hour of the ground war? What, what what was he doing? What was this? Was he was he was he really more focused on on the Republican Guard than anything? Even though obviously you had the Marines going through the breach and you know first ID. What what was what was he primarily focused on as the as the ground war was kicking off? He, he really wanted to know how the Republican that was his top priority. How would the Republican Guard react? Right. Uh, secondly, my my priority prior to the launch of the ground campaign was was uh, was artillery. He had a hundred a right. hundred and twenty six battalions of artillery, and 
and and you know as you go across the wire, you want to make sure that you you don't have a fire uh, artillery fire coming down on you. The other thing that really uh, really worried me were the 122 rockets uh, that he had, and and uh, they had the Egyptians had sold them some rocket 122 rocket rounds were capable of being filled with chemicals. My uh, my my Egyptian counterpart told me that. So my my highest priority was taking out the artillery uh, at the front line the front line trace. Right. And also my real top priority were the 122 rockets. Um, and now if I could kind of switch over to uh, the guys uh, you know the uh, uh, Paul and uh, Murph here. Um, Seventh Corps, of course, was out west, which was the, 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 the main effort with the mission of destroying the Republican Guard. Uh, Paul, why don't you, and I'm going to bring in Murph. We haven't forgotten about you. Uh, Paul, if you, could, if you could tell me what was going on in the uh, S2 section of 4-7 Cab during the first hours of the ground war. Take us through uh, uh, the first day. Right. Uh, so uh, we uh, swept out, basically, we are all... Uh, uh, in our vehicles moving out and uh, we had a pretty good I think we had a pretty good plan of knowing where we were obviously from uh, you know first contact here things kind of go downhill but um, or at least plans change uh, so uh, probably one of the biggest uh, issues that uh, you know or challenges we had was uh, is operating I think we did well as a, as a military we did fairly well in the static position i.e. You know, when you're at Hohensfeld or, or you're reforger, your talk is basically set up, your tactical operation set up. Well, we had to do this all on the move, which I thought was very much – we didn't practice. I thought it was a real challenge for us. So as we, uh, you know, crossed the berm and uh, through the breach there and headed uh, headed north, uh, you know, we were trying to get intel up to update. Comms were always kind of an issue, trying to make sure we were able to communicate and then be able to get the, the intel back and forth and get it plotted on the map while you're sitting in the back of a 577 on, on uh, you know, folding chairs, basically. Uh, um, so I think uh, as we rolled out that first day, uh, it's kind of rainy if I kind of remember right. Um, and, you know, we were just uh, moving without much contact, if I remember correctly. And uh, that was, I said, it was the first day we halted uh, later that evening. But uh, that's that would be my uh, lots of uh, sort of. Oh, I, I think the, uh, the I think Seventh Corps, uh, you know, had the European Army mindset of we're always going to fight a defense defense in depth war against a, a Russian attack. And I think that I think that whole mentality it, it, it transcended to the desert. Um, and I think. Um, Seventh Corps was very conservative. Let's talk about the the first night. Seventh Corps stopped. General Lighty, if you could talk about uh, what happened in the war room uh, when General Schwarzkopf uh, woke up from a you know two hours of sleep. You said he was in a pretty good mood initially. Um, he, I, I had heard all of the briefings. Uh, General Franks had had briefed General Schwarzkopf and others, including uh, the chairman. Uh, and SECDEF, but uh, what what I uh, during those briefings that uh, and and when General Schwarzkopf and General Franks and the other component command or the other 
commanders uh, got together. Uh, Schwarzkopf would impress on General Franks. He said, I don't want you to stop. I want you to keep going. I want you to keep going. And because we got to get we got to get those Republican guards be, as they come out of their logger. Either we got to prevent prevent them from from getting out. And so um, he went to bed when the when the first AD ID went and the other divisions trace right every. Certain point and uh, pre-plan points, uh, and, and so he went to bed and expected, I think expected uh, the Seventh Corps to be getting close to their objective, then ready to hit the Republican Guard. And when he got up and we saw where they stopped, he went into a Understatement to say a rage. <laughs> and uh, he was yeah. he was furious and he called for I think uh I think I lost you there for a second, Gerald Lady. Can you can you Yeah, he say went something? into a virtual rage and he called General Yosak and he riot act that if if Franks can't do it, he says, I'll, I'll get somebody who can, and I think he was thinking of Cal Waller, but uh, he was not a happy camper. Um, and so that, you know, there's several views on, you know, and I, I have a view that, yeah, I know 7th Corps is a behemoth. It's a huge, and logistically it's, it had to be very, very difficult to pour all those vehicles through there, not only the, the armored vehicles, but the trucks and whatever uh, going going up that way, um, going north, northeast, uh, and, 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 and then stopping. Uh, and maybe it was a, a, an honest pause to, uh, to regroup, refuel, re, rearm, and do whatever they had to do. Uh, but uh, General Schwarzkopf having none of it. Correct. And um, so I, I think I think I guess at the at the end of the day, uh, historians will have to will be debating whether uh, uh, General Franks' reasons for doing so was he right was he wrong. Uh, as we moved along on the ground war, now we're now into uh, if I can move to uh, G plus two or, or uh, two days after the initial attack. Um, if you could take us through General Lighty operationally a little bit, uh, the Marines are almost on the verge on, on the second or third day of uh, taking Kuwait City. The Arabs have finally gotten going. I think they had some problems at the beginning with the timetable hmm. after it was speeded up, and and uh, we're now almost at the uh, at the point where Seventh uh, Corps is finally going to hit the Republican Guard. Um, if you could just uh, kind of give us a picture, maybe a little bit more of what was going on in the war room on uh, the 26th of February. G plus two. Initially, the Marines, of course, uh, uh, were were to go up the east, the eastern coast. With with there there were some of the Saudis in there as well, but and then there was the Arab Corps to their west, their western flank. 
and they were supposed to go in once the Marines got got stabilized in their attack. Well, what happened was that the Marines went in went so quickly, uh, the Marines and the Tiger Brigade, uh, that uh, you could see that there was an open flank to their west. And so General mm. Schwarzkopf, when he saw that, uh, said, look, we got to do something about this. So he he accelerated the attack, the, the Western attack, both by the Arab Corps and Seventh Corps uh, by 13 hours. Now, our guys could do that pretty pretty good because we're pretty adroit and fast and are used to that, but the Egyptians aren't. Uh, you know, they're all Soviet trained and they just they're, they're very do things in the right way. And so they were kind of in a panic mode by you know, accelerating their attack by 13 hours. Our folks had no problem with it. I mean, it was a problem, but they were able to solve it pretty quickly uh, and, and just accelerate our attack in the west. But we had to get the, uh, the Arab Corps going uh, in the east. And so as the, uh, the Marines started going up towards, towards the airport, the airfield at, uh, at, in Kuwait City, uh, then our Seventh uh, Corps was on, was on the way to, uh, uh, on the attack in the west. So it was, it was starting to go pretty well, except, there, you know, there were hiccups here and there, but uh, it, it, was, uh, it was going pretty well at the time. And and as we got into as I, I'm speeding up here to uh, is once again to uh, G Day plus two, which is 26 February uh, 1991, which was really I, I think was sort of the almost the culmination day of the uh, ground war when Seventh Corps finally made contact with the Republican Guard. Um, uh, first, before I bring in Paul and Murph here, General Lighty, if you could tell us by G Day plus three, uh, what was your picture what was the enemy situation as far as the republican guard um what, what was their what did you think they were going to do where they were going to how what units were moving back what units were staying put what was your your overall picture on that day well it appeared it appeared that the Talcana division was put into a blocking position uh and the the medina and the hammurabi or the hammurabi then the medina were were just behind them and and so as as we started to move up towards uh, towards the Tawakana division, uh, I, I, it still frustrates me because I think we could have taken them all out if we had gone another day. But unfortunately, the weather turned sour on us uh, during that period of time, and so we we uh, we had to do what we had to do. But uh, the Tawakana I don't know. Maybe you know. Just before that, the the, uh, the launch of the ground the ground campaign, uh, I had some signers in, and we talked to them. And one of the sergeants, had, I asked them. I said, "What do we have still still uh, active out there?" Because we had taken out a lot of their uh, their communications uh, capabilities, and he said, "Well, we have." 13 nodes, uh, 10 of them, I think it was 10, uh, nine of them or whatever it was, was in the front line trace, and the rest were back with the Republican Guard. 
So I had to make a decision. I said, well, what, what good would it be to take out each one of these or leave them up? The frontline divisions said, let's take those out because I don't want them to coordinating a counterattack because the most critical time is when, uh, when we cross, cross the wire. So if we take out those communication nodes down, down south, uh, they won't be able to co coordinate a a, uh, a counterattack uh, as well. Uh, but leave the ones in the Republican Guard up so that as as we attack them, we can read them and see what what their plans are. And so as we were as Seventh Corps was starting to approach the Republican Guard, we were getting almost real time. They, they came up on the net. They normally had uh, pretty good control of their, of their, uh, you know, their communications. In fact, they, they, they were forbidden to come up, but they, but they did come up because they were under real, real fire. And so, as, as they were coordinating their, their defenses, uh, we were intercepting their communications, and I was giving General Schwarzkopf virtually almost real-time communications from the, uh, the uh, Republican Guards units and their command and control. So it was really uh, fantastic. And of course, the, the uh, J-STARS was giving us an uh, other picture of, of their movement as well. So we were doing pretty well with that and passing that down to 7th Corps. Uh, and they were, uh, they were doing a masterful job taking out the Talakana Division. I think if we had gone one more day, or even if we had they had given us one more day, because the the rest of the, the Republican Guard divisions, the most of the Medina and the Hammurabi moved across to Basra. Right. And I knew exactly where they all were. They were all in logger positions, and if they gave us one more day, we could have taken them all out. Um, but that's a story for another day. But it's it's still a it's it's still a uh, uh, an interesting time because we were able to use our intelligence to not only blind them but also listen to them. So it was pretty it was pretty uh, pretty good time. Um, Paul, if you could talk take us through uh, four seven cab on the move uh, the S two section on twenty six February and. Uh, what happened, and just, just kind of describe the whole situation intel-wise and uh, maybe a little operations, too. Yeah, I just, again, kind of uh, basically, uh, you know, we, we were rolling in our 577, basically. We were uh, getting intel updates. Uh, it was uh, a challenge to try to process it as you're kind of rolling along in the back of a 577. Uh, we had fairly good communications with the the squadrons or the, uh, the troops, I should say. So each troop was pretty much reporting in. I think we had a pretty uh, clear picture of kind of the, at least on day two of what was kind of going on on the ground. Uh, but uh, higher headquarters was uh, often a challenge to get the third armored division and get, you know, uh, uh, the Intel dump from them. Uh, I'd say it was kind of intermittent throughout the day. Sometimes we had a relay through uh, one of the brigades uh, in order to even be able to kind of reach anybody. Um, so, you know, it was, 
a little bit confusing. I think the Intel picture wasn't as clear once we kind of crossed the uh, line of departure and kind of started to move. I think at that point, uh, again, I'd say that we had a fairly good understanding of what the troops were seeing, you know, the, the different troops were reporting in. Uh, it was a little bit more of a challenge to, to kind of piece together um, from higher headquarters. And then, uh, again, a, another challenge is that uh, in more of a static situation, you know, you're, you're co-located with the S3. And in this particular case, the S3's track vehicle was, you know, several meters away from us, and we weren't sitting in the necessarily sitting in the exact same spot. Uh, we did have communications, of course. We could we could uh, conduct a radio call. We had fairly good communications with uh, uh, Colonel um, Colonel Tucker. Uh, one area that I thought was interesting is that our internal net for dealing with Intel was pretty much dead. I mean, we were pretty much operating on the operational net to even kind of get a picture of what was going on. It was, uh, I think the Intel net uh, was, was almost non-existent uh, communication going over that. So I, I think that's how day two kind of unfolded. Yeah, I think the Intel flow, whenever we stopped and we could get uh, that, uh, that primitive fax, you know, the insum coming in from, from higher headquarters, the effects we were getting a lot of stuff. The, the problem I always saw with seven core, we just weren't that good on the move. And when we had to move, we had to send uh, spot reports to uh, the third armor division uh, tack forward elements. Uh, I believe we had to go through a couple relays to even get to them. So there was a problem with the information flow on the move, but once we were static there, then we did have a lot of information. Um, so on, on the afternoon of the 26th, February, uh, second ACR, which actually, if you looked at 7th Corps, I don't know if you could picture this. If you're listening, we're traveling at an oblique angle, which meant that second ACR was south of 4-7 Cab. It actually hit the Republican Guard about, what, a half an hour before we did, or 15 minutes. And uh, how would you uh, have inter- – what was the interpretation of how that, that fight and what they were encountering, Paul, and how that was going to relate to the rest of the 3rd Armored Division? Yeah, so uh... – as, as we were getting some of this intel flow, we were trying to plot on a map kind of like, okay, hey, where, where is that uh, defensive line that, uh, that other forces were hitting? So, you know, uh, we were able to kind of patch that together, I think. But, uh, again, it was trying to get it relayed out. Hey, here's what's going on. You know, are we in an exploitation mode or are we actually going to hit a, a, a static defense? And, again, I think communications breakdowns happen because we didn't really necessarily train to, to uh, fight uh, on the move as, as uh, we, were happy, we were happy to do at that time. Yeah, and I, I think if I could say that for anybody who's listening, um, you know, that people have heard of the this Battle of 7-3 Easting. The 7-3 Easting was a, uh, was, a, was a grid line, a north-south grid line on the map. Um, <clears throat> it was actually, that battle was the culmination or the beginning of a uh, – much larger fight between seventh Corps elements and the Republican guard that started about three uh, thirty in the afternoon and went on about, I would say 12 hours until the evening, late eve or into early hours of the next day. Um, Murph, if I can bring in Murph here, uh, Murph, if I can bring in, why, why don't you, why don't you tell me from your vantage point, what it was like when uh four, seven Cav uh, alpha troop made contact with the Tawakana division. What, what, what did you see? What, what, what were you doing? Okay. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, we we can hear you. Okay. All right. I'm I'm 
I'm driving home for dinner. I'm a newlywed, and if I'm late, I got to answer to household six. So if I if I lose, I'll, I'll try and call you back. Okay. So it was uh, afternoon of 26 February. It was blowing sand. We um, uh, I was driving the 577 for uh, then Lieutenant Christopher Hoffman, and uh, we he directed me to a nice divot that we I tried to get it into as best a uh, hold down deflate position as I could. I couldn't really see much of anything. I could just listen to the radios, but uh, the XO said he could see the pretty much the whole thing that was going on. So I just listened to the radios. So it was um, taking fire, um, vehicles hit, returning fire, and then um, casualties. And then uh, it, to me it seemed like time slowed down. Like I, I, I thought it took longer. It, it seemed like hours, but it was, you know, what, 40 minutes, hour and 10 total. Correct. Uh, actually, maybe uh, okay. almost an hour and a, hour and a half. Yeah. Um, an hour and a half. It, it seemed like hours and hours. So. Um, uh, if I can we bring it, we go were, ahead. No, we, we were monitoring a bunch of nets, so um, I get to I get to hear a lot of the chatter back and forth. So. Thank um, you. Yeah, Paul and uh, Scott, do you want to add anything else from your perspective on what, you know, for anybody's listening, what did it look like when, you know, uh, 7th, when 7th Corps finally made contact with the Republican Guard as evening kind of, you know, we went into, you know, the beginning of the evening and the end of the, the, this battle? I'll let Scott go, but uh, I'll have a comment afterwards. Again? Uh, go ahead, Scott. I'll, I'll comment afterwards. Okay, yeah. Well, I was definitely going to echo that uh, that sense of time dilation where it just, you know, it. it I remember also thinking. Uh, in fact, I, it was years later. I think when I when I I think you and I were talking, Ray, or or, or, or I had read some account uh, where the, the the total time of contact was not not very long relative to my perception uh which was that it was it felt like hours i mean it just it felt like forever it felt like there was no time uh and it could, that was aided by the fact that we couldn't see anything because of the sandstorm um and uh so that that very surreal sense of of you know I, 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 almost literally the fog of war because we couldn't see uh and all that um and then from my point of view as the air defender operationally, you know, we were, we didn't have our own net. We had to operate entirely on the squadron, uh, command net. So that meant we didn't do a lot of talking. Um, so, uh, you know, this sense of, of being, uh, you know, isolated visually, uh, and, you know, my guys out doing what they needed to do, and just listening to the play-by-play on the command net, it felt very surreal uh, from that point of view. Uh, I don't know if that's where you're, where you're, if you're trying to get sort of the emotional picture of what it was like to to, to be there, or if you're looking for something else. But 
And, and kind of, uh, you know, audio-visual images just for anybody who's listening. Uh, Paul, do you have anything to add to this? Before we yeah, move I, on? I would just say that it, it was definitely, uh, during contact, it was uh, blowing. Uh, you know, the weather seemed to be kind of poor. Uh, I had to get out of the track momentarily, and it, there were rounds flying, uh, mortars coming in. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is that, you know, we were listening, like uh, Murph would say, we were listening to the, the command net and it sounded like uh, alpha troop commander may have been uh, hit and there was actually an Iraqi uh, armored counterattack going on. At least we were getting reports that an armored column was moving toward uh, four seven calf. So, uh, you know, that was all into the mix. So I thought it seemed like uh, forever uh, is time wise. And uh, it was definitely late in the afternoon. So um, that's kind of what my recollection of Paul. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I, I believe, uh, well, that night the Tawakana division was, was largely destroyed. I mean, uh, General Eddie, wouldn't you say, I think the, the figure that, I, I believe that the Tawakana commander was killed in a deep artillery strike. The whole division, I mean, was pretty much wiped out. Isn't that about right? It was, it was basically destroyed. Yeah. And there was not, hardly anything left of the Tawakana. They were the sacrificial lamb. And so as, as dawn broke on 27 February, G-Day plus three, um, what, how, how much had the enemy situation changed, General Leidy, from what you had 24 hours earlier? G plus three or G plus four? Uh, G plus three. So you have 27 February, uh, I guess 24 hours before the ceasefire. Yeah. Um, well, things were... I mean, every, everything was going well. We were taking out the uh, the second echelon, the, the Brits, and, uh, and some of our units were taking out the second echelon units uh, as they as they went to the east. And and uh, the uh, 24th Division was up uh, up north, uh, up, up towards the uh, Euphrates, and uh, of course we had. We had the 101st out out west with the uh, uh, with the French. It was uh, everybody was moving beautifully. I mean, it was just incredible. And uh, General McCaffrey's 24th had basically closed off the whole uh, that whole area up north. Um, so it was it was it was moving along, and and I could see uh, a, a total destruction. Uh, of the uh, of the Republican Guard, I mean, other than the, the second echelon, we were good, I thought we destroyed. But main concern was getting destroying the Republican Guard so that they wouldn't be a a, a factor after the war. Uh, but that never really mm-hmm. happened. Ended too uh, soon. So. As, as we're on uh, G plus three on 27 February, Hank, why don't you just talk quickly about uh, what you were doing on that day? That was a big day for Air Cav. You were forward of the, uh, the division, I believe, of First Brigade. Uh, what were you oh, yeah. doing on that day? That but, was a big uh, day. What we did every day, and to include the third day, is that uh, we'd get up in the morning and take off under goggles and uh, with our scout aircraft, our 58s, and uh, we'd land. They'd go out and get briefed. We'd go to the um, the the most forward unit, and we would land, and they'd give us an axis of advance, and the scouts would stay behind us instead of out front because we couldn't protect them because uh, you had such 
in the desert, you actually shoot max range most of the time, and then uh, then if the weather get bad, you'd only have a hundred to two hundred yards visibility. It's hard for anybody to understand that uh, unless you've been there. Um, but uh, we basically had, I think, the best seat in the house as we're traveling around a hundred or so miles an hour at five to 15 feet off the ground and we're in and out and left and right and watching the tanks all shooting each other and uh, we're shooting back and uh, uh, we'd move out and make contact just like a regular cavalry is supposed to do. And um, uh, during those four days, I was figuring up how many rounds we fired uh, each Cobra. Not We had four Cobras in our troop. Each Cobra fired between 12 and 14,000 rounds of 20 millimeter, over 700 rockets, and between 80 and 100 tow missiles. We would dump all that ammo on these bad guys. We'd run into a dug-in, one we ran into a dug-in tank battalion, and they opened up on the two Cobras and the two Scouts. And so we stayed there and just shot it out with them until the, you know, the whatever brigade we were supporting that day would move forward and 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 stomp on them so and uh what we saw was just uh, it's kind of a sensory overload you just you're seeing you're shooting and then you're seeing out the right or left side of the cockpit um a, a lightning bolt which is a sabo round going off and uh streak across and hit uh T72 and rip, literally rip the turret off a main battle tank and the secondary explosions going off and the turret fly, what, 25, 30 tons, fly up in the air, 50 to 150 feet in the air. And and the the D-30 battery, we came up on a D-30 battery and they're trying to shoot artillery and, and we're just shooting all of them. And we came up on compounds of, our, you know, of, of Iraqis and they're running around and jumping in their APCs and all and just unloading on them with 20 millimeters and the, and the damn thing's just catching on fire. And, and, uh, my front seater put a tow missile in an MTLB command track that we found out later was a regimental commander and blew it shit, you know, and, and then double teaming a ZSU 23, four, any aircraft gun tank between my wingman Demas and um, you know, and our aircraft, and and just on and on and on. We would, we were flying, and the weather was so bad at times that that as we were flying forward, we just run up on a tank or run up on some armored vehicles, and the guys were sitting on the tankers or or, or not realizing we were there. And it just ended up like some kind of fight, and you know, like a, whoever draws first and shoots first and and hits is the one that wins. And we're we're constantly shooting at people, uh, not only up front but to our right and left. Uh, and and the armor guys were armor guys were were coming up and just wearing wearing their asses out. They were. We had one shoot a sabo underneath my damn cobra i was at 15 feet or so and we were trying to knock out a t-62 about 302 to 300 yards in front of us 
And our tow system had stopped working. It had gone down because one of the black boxes had burned up in the back you know, tail boom. And this, and, and we're shooting it with 20-millimeter and rockets, and it's not doing any good. And this, this M1, thank God, came up and fired a Sabo underneath my aircraft and went over, and it just tore the turn off that T-62. I'm like, God, I just, I, man, it was total fucking bedlam out there on the battlefield. Everybody uh, is shooting everybody. Yeah. General, I think you talk about that too about uh, about the, uh, the those the Soviet tanks when they when they actually make them with the turrets they don't actually the way they did they sort of just set the turret in there and so there's, they're not really you know bolted in or anything and then when, when our rounds would hit that was causing these these tremendous uh, explosions where these turrets would fly into the air a couple hundred feet uh, yeah, I think you mentioned it, you mentioned that yeah, before the Ray is that they they were the tanks were dug in they, they, you know, they even if they wanted to, they probably couldn't have got out of those dug-in positions. Not all, no, no, not all the tanks were dug in. They were on the move. Oh, I know. There were quite I, a few, quite a few were. dug in, and there was quite a few out there running around on the battlefield. I understand that, but we're talking. I mean, about I actually saw this with my own two eyes because I was, I was there on the battlefield shooting the tanks that were shooting at us. Oh, I, I understand that. I, what I was talking about is, for example, our tanks would sit back and, and uh, hit a hit a tank in bad weather, uh, what, 2,700 meters, yards, and and all I could see was the was the uh, was the turret, and they hit that turret. Right. And of course, it would it would blow, but I, I understand that there were other you know there were other engagements and there were, that they were running around there as well because I went up there later and I saw a lot of that stuff but uh, I'm just talking about how they were able the turret was the only thing that was sticking up out of the out of those revetments and because uh, I told you know I told everybody I said you know tanks aren't going to be our problem because our Cobras and the A-10s will take care of those uh, the, the uh, tanks and, and of course our our our, uh, our tanks and Cobras and the A-10 is a good, uh, incredible combination of firepower, would take care of the tanks. And out of the 4,500 tanks that they had, 46-something tanks that they had, we destroyed 4,000 of them. So that, uh, I mean, that, it's, it's unbelievable. Some of it was tank blinking in the, initially, but a lot of it was by the Cobras and the A-10s and the, uh, and the, 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 uh, our tanks, the M1s. Right. Um, you know, gentlemen, I'm going to have to, uh, we're almost running out of time here. Um, if uh, any, General Eddie, why don't you just give us a quick, uh, about uh, one minute uh, of the final, what happened in the war room as the war was ending, how uh, General Schwarzkopf reacted, and then uh, I'm going to have to say goodbye. We're, we're almost running out of time here, gentlemen. Yeah, as as, uh, as things were progressing and, and uh, it looked like uh, it was the highway of death that really did a lot of it. Um, you know, th there was a there was an awful lot of press on the highway of death, and and uh, things were getting uh, getting they were getting antsy in Washington. So one morning, the morning, he got a phone call from General Powell, and he said that uh, we're going to end the thing and. 
making a, a hundred hours, and of course, uh, you know, that everybody said, well, you know, great, we won, and let, let's get it over with. But I kind of wish we had gone one more day. But other than that, it was uh, it was it was not euphoric, but it was pretty satisfying. Well, um, I'm going to have to let you guys go here. We're running out of time. Um, I, thank you so much for joining us, General Lighty, uh, Hank Hunt. Uh, Paul Adamanis, uh, Scott Henderson, and uh, Murph, thank you very much. And uh, for anybody in the audience, you can uh, listen to this uh, broadcast anytime you want. Uh, go to usdefensewatch.com and click on uh, several of the links. Or you can go to iTunes Podcast and listen, or uh, stitcher.com or iTunes. And once again, gentlemen, thank you very much, and thank you for your service um, in the United States military. Bye-bye. Hello. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars. Be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly Cause there ain't no doubt I love you